John 3.16. That may throw off some people, all right? But um, I'm really excited about discussing this topic tonight because this is one of the questions that hangs a lot of Christians up. It's the question of how do we understand when we read the Bible all of the examples of where it speaks of God as just or even God as being full of wrath and then all of those other passages in the Bible that speak of God's love. Um, just by kind of a show of hands, how many of you have ever, ever thought about, how, how do I work this together? Any of you ever had questions about God's okay, justice slash wrath and love? Um, I believe if we can hone in on this verse, 1 John 3.16, as we begin, we're going to kind of go wide and examine the questions. And I've printed out the outline again for you so we can all kind of follow along together. And then we're going to come back to this text as we close. But notice what it says. It says, by this we know love. By what? Well, let's um, go back to the whole concept of 1 John. Thanks, Bryce. You're, You're a winner. You know that? I know. Yeah, he knows. All right. And for those of you who are in the choir, that is Mr. Awesome, right? Okay. And um, by this, we know love. By what? Well, if we look back at 1 John, uh, we find things, if you can go back with me very quickly to the first chapter, we find that really awesome verse in verse 8 for people who think they're perfect. It says, if we say we have no sin, we what? Deceive <laughs> we deceive ourselves. So you don't even need any help from somebody else. It's like we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So in verse 9, this great verse that many of us are familiar with, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And just to clarify, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, the whole question is, why would someone even need to confess their sin? Because we need the forgiveness of God, right? We need to be in a relationship with God. And if there is no sin, then we're already in a relationship with God. It's not a problem. But if sin is a problem, then we need someone to solve the problem. So it's speaking of Jesus' death on the cross that he reconciles us with God. So go back to chapter 3 and verse 16 with me. By this, and the this is the gospel, it's the life the death, the resurrection of Christ, that he laid down his life for us, right? Perfect God, uh, corrupt people, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So it's kind of like God laid down his life for me, therefore, because I've been forgiven, I get to forgive. And so we're going to come back to this verse in just a minute, but there's a statement here by Millard Erickson about if we can kind of hone in on this and we're going to try to unpack it. Justice is loving justice and love is just love. Okay? Often we think of justice and wrath as being things that are automatically bad and love is automatically something that doesn't include justice. Right? Or love not including wrath. But um, common confusion about God's justice and love, one of these would be, I don't know if you've ever seen the classic AMC movie, Sodom and Gomorrah. Anybody? Okay. Um, it, it's basically a waste of your life um, because a lot of those types of movies, they, it's kind of like dramatized the Bible, but it doesn't really depict it. It's kind of like it was a place that had some problems, the people weren't really hospitable, and then God said, well, you're not hospitable, so I'm going to roast you. And everybody leaves the movie like, that's 
pretty strange. So I think God's the good guy, but I'm not really sure. Um, but what actually happened, okay, in reality is there was total annihilation, right? I mean, that, that's what the text says. You've been reading through Genesis, right, John? Yep. It's been awesome. Yeah, and I think it's, it's so great when we begin to get into the text of the Bible and like, whoa, especially the Old Testament, it's not safe for the family at all. Like, it's very raw, and it, I think it's good because, it, you know, sometimes when we look at our lives, we're like, I don't really fit with the way that Christians are often described. And then when you look in the Bible, you're like, oh, okay, so Abraham did that. Interesting, right? And, um, and so, so we, we know that happened, all right? And there's actually some great archaeological research out there, and so... We see that God is a God of justice or vengeance. Um, let's talk about another one, uh, Noah's Ark. This is, a, this is what we're often taught as kids. Now, Miss Sharon doesn't do this because she's the greatest children's teacher ever. Um, but you, you have kind of this picture of Noah's Ark, and that's what's on a lot of children's books, right? You, you've got the animals. They're kind of all just basically cartoon characters. There's peace. You, you notice the sky. It's clear. A few clouds. What does this often communicate to, to people about, let's say, Noah's flood? Cheerful time. <laughs> okay. It's a cheerful time. It's a floating zoo. I mean, that's every kid's dream. What do you think that pictures like this don't communicate? How violent it was. Yeah, how, how violent it was. Um, the seriousness of God's wrath. What's that? The seriousness of God's wrath. That's a great line, the seriousness of God's wrath. That makes it look like a children's fable. Not Ooh. Of God's wrath. Now, actually, I had not thought about that. That's a great thought when you, when you look at stuff like that. I'm going to go think about that some more. Interesting. This is what actually happened. We know that it wasn't just a happy thing. It wasn't just a children's fable. But everybody outside the ark died. That's like total world population minus eight people. That's like, that's like rated more than R. I mean, even with the body count movies, the Rambos and, and, and the, the, you know, the what is it, Soldier of Fortune and Commando with Schwarzenegger, there were some people who lived, like a few, but this is where everybody dies. If you notice that this picture, I think pictures it so well, you've got some children over here trying to cling onto the rocks, and it's almost like... You've got that rock jutting out of the water, and everything else is water except for the ark. And you know soon that's going to be underwater as well, and everybody's dead. Like, Can you imagine that epic type of silence after the rain stopped, and you realized, we're it. The whole planet and this solar system, and, and we're it. Everybody dies. And who, who, who killed them? God did, all right? So already the questions are building. So we've got God nuking people at Sodom and Gomorrah. We've got him drowning them with the worldwide flood. And another one, let's look at this popular little children's, I love the children's book. It says, sing a story, sing a story, Battle of Jericho. Um, you guys remember the, the kid's song, Battle of Jericho? Jericho. Jericho, Jericho, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Woo! <laughs> and that's what we were taught as kids. But then, you know, I remember I was somewhere around the age of like 12. I was like, what happened when the walls fell down? This looks happy before we go on with that. This looks happy, right? Everybody's going around. 
And um, often we're taught as kids, actually this was brought when I was a kid, teachers like told us like this is the point of the Bible story. Remember they walked around the city for, for six days and, and then they didn't do what? They didn't speak. It's like, so it's time to play the silent game. So like what we learn from, you know, the story of Battle of Jericho is that God wants you as a kid not to just shut up, right? That's God's will for your life. But here's what actually happened. Actually, I want to show you guys this too. This is circa 1992. It's like the Joshua uh, Atari, or this is maybe Game Boy. What's that? You never saw that? Actually, the, the Moses game was even better because Moses was like this little guy that would go here and he would be shooting out manna and like take out the bad guys. He had like a manna gun. It was very bizarre looking back at it, you know, because that's not actually what happened. I just thought I'd show that to you guys so it would uplift your spirits tonight. Okay, you good? Version 6, wow, okay. And it's from Wisdom Tree Incorporation. All right, before we all get depressed, let's go on to the next one. Um, this is what really happened. When the walls fell down, everyone was slaughtered except for Rahab's family. Now, did the people just do that? <clears throat> they just to say, you know what, let's just go kill people. Why did they do that? God told them to. And not only did he tell them, for this city specifically, kill everyone, but he says, don't even take any of the spoil. Which, remember, Achan violated that rule and took some of the things that looked nice, and then later he and his family died. So we've already got God nuking people, Sodom and Gomorrah. We've got God drowning the whole earth except for eight people. Then for Canaan, telling the Israelites to wipe everybody out. So then we switch over to the New Testament. And we've got some divine acts of mercy. Just a few of the things that Jesus did, his acts of mercy. He heals the nobleman's son. He heals the demoniac, the man who was living in a graveyard. They would chain him up. He would break the chains. They would chain him up, break the chains. Jesus heals him. Jesus cleanses the leper. That was a fatal disease during those days. Your body, your body would actually rot off. Can you imagine that? You were talking about like a lease and being ill. And your, your body... I'm not trying to be gross, but it would literally rot off. And there was no way that you could treat that, but Jesus heals a person. He healed, he healed the paralytic, the person who was never able to walk. Cures the woman with the issue of blood, who had actually bankrupted herself trying to find somebody who could help her, and then all she did was touch the hem of Jesus' garment, and he heals her. Restored sight to two blind men, Opens the eyes of a man born blind in John chapter 9. Whole life not being able to see. And here comes Jesus and he begins to heal people. So people are reading through the Bible. And uh, another one here would be that he raises Lazarus from the dead. That's a pretty big blessing, right? Unless you're Lazarus. And then you have to come back after you've been there. Can you imagine, you know, talk about 90 minutes in heaven. Lazarus was there. You can only imagine the Lord said, you know, Lazarus, you're going to have to go back down for just a few years. Come on! You know, but then he goes down and he comes out and he sees Jesus. So here, at this point, we've got what seems to be the case in the Old Testament, and then we swing to Jesus healing everybody. And this is this this is not what happens. This is not biblical, but this is what a lot of people say. In the Old Testament, God's killing everybody, and then in the New Testament, the Son of God comes and He's healing everybody. So then the claim is this. The God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament is a God of mercy. Okay. Yeah, well. 
What about Revelation? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And we're, we're going to get to correcting this in just a second, but good job. So you were on that like, bam, what about Revelation? That's true. Yeah. Um, so before we go further, it's very interesting, and I hope this will, will help you when you think you, when you've got questions. There's a guy named Marcion. He lived from 85 uh, AD or CE from, to 160. And he um, was actually excommunicated from the church, but here's what he did with the problem. He began to read through the Bible, and he said, there are two gods. One in the Old Testament is the Hebrew God of wrath and vengeance, and then there's the God of love as revealed in Jesus in the New Testament. So he actually had some questions, but didn't examine the Bible thoroughly, and then he said that there were irreconcilable differences between the Old and New Testament, which means if you took the Bible, he said, you know, there's no way that you can reconcile it. There's not only two different messages, but there's actually two totally different gods. All right? And here's what he also taught. Uh, He created his own Bible by excluding 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, as well as in editing the Gospel of Luke. Then he banned his followers from eating meat and having uh, intercourse. And here's the reason why. Why would he do any of that? Because he taught that Jesus' body was not real because a material body would be evil. Because matter was created by the evil Hebrew God in the Old Testament. Let's stop right here. He had such a problem with the, with the Old Testament that he said, it's two totally different gods. And we talked a few weeks ago about how big of a problem dualism is, right? Believing like in a power of four, of light and the power of darkness that are equal because they're going to collide, right? There never anything could be created. If it was created, it would never move in one direction or the other. It would just equal it out. And um, so he said that Jesus didn't have a real body. It was just kind of an appearance like he had a real body. Well, why would he make that claim? Well, because if you have a real body, then that means everything that we see, material stuff, it's evil. Your body is evil. The world is evil. Trees are evil. Chihuahuas are evil. I mean, every, everything is evil. But what would be a problem with that if we believe that the material world is evil? Remember anything in Scripture that goes against what Marcion taught? God created good. Okay. All right. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. It's what the Bible says. Right, Marcion? And people were hearing this in the first century. They're like, what are you smoking? And he began to teach this more and more. And so what ultimately happened is he was excommunicated in 144 CE because he was teaching, number one, Jesus is not necessarily the Son of God and uh, or in what we would understand it. And let's stop right here. What would be the significance of Jesus having a body? Why is that important that he would be born um, or have a physical body like ours for the gospel or for the Christian faith? Why is that a big deal? Exactly, exactly, to, to live as one of us, to pay the price for our sins. And there's um, something that we've covered before by a guy named Gregory of Nazianzus, and he said that what has not been assumed cannot be redeemed, which means that if Jesus did not assume a human body like ours, he wouldn't really fit the category of a savior for humans, right? Because you've got to be one of them in order to be the savior of them. 
He had to be, like Hebrews says, tested in all points as we are, yet without sin, which is a great encouraging verse about when we struggle with it. So that's kind of just a little bit of background by people who have gone really, really far and not tried to biblically correct this problem um, or this perceived problem of God's wrath and God's love. So what about wrath? I'm just going to go through this statement and we're going to talk about it, okay? People say, okay, it's one thing, Jeff, to say that God is just, but it's another thing to say that God has wrath. God is infinite in knowledge, right? Amen? God, God knows all. He's the greatest conceivable being. So making just decisions must be based on correct information, right? Got to have the right information. Decisions made by an infinitely good being with all knowledge those decisions are perfectly just. Would you agree with this? Because he knows exactly all the information. That's one of the reasons why we have trials, right? Why we don't just have mob rule. Because we try as best we can to see if we have all the information so that we can make the just call. And when God has all knowledge, he's infinitely good, his decisions are perfectly just. Thus, we can pray knowing that God will do that which is just. That's a great, I think it's a great practical application that God will do what's right. So when I ask him for that, I'm praying according to who he is and he will answer. So furthermore, God's quote wrath is not imbalanced like ours, but is the perfect mixture. And I may if you underline, perfect mixture of justice and passion. Okay, God is a God of passion, desiring to do the right thing, which he does, and the right thing is that which is just. Now, often when we hear the word wrath, what do we think of? Any, any picture that may come to mind, not even having to do with Christianity, but we hear the word wrath or angry. Destruction. Okay, destruction. Okay. Or when maybe uh, a guy says, I made my wife very angry. Normal. Normal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, let's, let's talk about personally. When we get really mad, okay, we, we don't use the word wrathful. I've never talked to anybody before and they said, I am feeling quite wrathful today. We say, I'm ticked off, I'm hacked off, I'm other... Other phrases, I'm angry, I'm mad. What, do, do we normally make the best decisions when we are in that state of mind? Okay, usually we seek revenge. And who's usually the object of that revenge? <laughs> so we, we've got... <laughs> Miss Sharon, we've got... There we go. You go overboard. Anybody ever been guilty of that? Maybe taking something a little bit further than it should have been? You know, often the reason why we misunderstand a lot of what the Bible's saying about God's wrath and his anger and his, go, go KGV, KJV for a minute, his vehement anger is because we see the word anger, we see the word wrath, and we interpret that through our own experience. John 316, that may throw off some people, all right? But um, I'm really excited about discussing this topic tonight because this is one of the questions that hangs a lot of Christians up. 
It's the question of how do we understand when we read the Bible all of the examples of where it speaks of God as just or even God as being full of wrath and then all of those other passages in the Bible that speak of God's love. Um, just by kind of a show of hands, how many of you have ever, ever thought about how, how do I work this together? Any of you ever had questions about God's okay, justice slash wrath and love? Um, I believe if we can hone in on this verse, 1 John 3.16, as we begin, we're going to kind of go wide and examine the questions. And I printed out the outline again for you so we can all kind of follow along together. And then we're going to come back to this text as we close. But notice what it says. It says, by this we know love. By what? Well, let's um, go back to the whole concept of 1 John. Thanks, Bryce. You're, You're a winner. You know that? I know. Yeah, he knows. All right. And for those of you who are in the choir, that is Mr. Awesome. All right. Okay. And um, by this, we know love. By what? Well, if we look back at 1 John, uh, we find things, if you can go back with me very quickly to the first chapter, we find that really awesome verse in verse 8 for people who think they're perfect. It says, if we say we have no sin, we what? Deceive ourselves. <laughs> we deceive ourselves. So you don't even need any help from somebody else. It's like we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So in verse 9, this great verse that many of us are familiar with, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And just to clarify, verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Now, the whole question is, why would someone even need to confess their sin? Because we need the forgiveness of God, right? We need to be in a relationship with God. And if there is no sin, then we're already in a relationship with God. It's not a problem. But if sin is a problem, then we need someone to solve the problem. So it's speaking of Jesus' death on the cross that he reconciles us with God. So go back to chapter 3 and verse 16 with me. By this, and the this is the gospel, it's the life the death, the resurrection of Christ, that he laid down his life for us. Right? Perfect God, uh, corrupt people, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So it's kind of like God laid down his life for me, therefore, because I've been forgiven, I get to forgive. And so we're going to come back to this verse in just a minute, but there's a statement here by Millard Erickson about if we can kind of hone in on this and we're going to try to unpack it. Justice is loving justice and love is just love. Okay? Often we think of justice and wrath as being things that are automatically bad and love is automatically something that doesn't include justice. Right? Or love not including wrath. But um, common confusion about God's justice and love, one of these would be, I don't know if you've ever seen the classic AMC movie, Sodom and Gomorrah. Anybody? Okay. Um, it, it's basically a waste of your life um, because a lot of those types of movies, they, it's kind of like dramatized the Bible, but it doesn't really depict it. It's kind of like it was a place that had some problems. The people weren't really hospitable. And then God said, well, you're not hospitable, so I'm going to roast you. And everybody leaves the movie like, that's pretty strange. So I think God's the good guy, but I'm not really sure. Um, but what actually happened, okay, in reality, is there was total annihilation, right? I mean, that, that's what the text says. You've been reading through Genesis, right, John? Yep. It's been awesome. Yeah, that's really good. 
Yeah, and I think it's, it's so great when we begin to get into the text of the Bible and like, whoa, especially the Old Testament, it's not safe for the family at all. Like, it's very raw, and it, I think it's good because, it, you know, sometimes when we look at our lives, we're like, I don't really fit with the way that Christians are often described. And then when you look in the Bible, you're like, oh, okay, so Abraham did that. Interesting, right? And, um, and so, so we, we know that happened, all right? And there's actually some great archaeological research out there, and so... We see that God is a God of justice or vengeance. Um, let's talk about another one, uh, Noah's Ark. This is, this is what we're often taught as kids. Now, Miss Sharon doesn't do this because she's the greatest children's teacher ever. Um, but you, you have kind of this picture of Noah's Ark, and that's what's on a lot of children's books, right? You, you've got the animals. They're kind of all just basically cartoon characters. There's peace. You, you notice the sky. It's clear. A few clouds. What does this often communicate to, to people about, let's say, Noah's flood? Cheerful time. <laughs> okay. It's a cheerful time. It's a floating zoo. I mean, that's every kid's dream. What do you think that pictures like this don't communicate? How violent it was. Yeah, how, how violent it was. Um, the seriousness of God's wrath. What's that? The seriousness of God's wrath. That's a great line, the seriousness of God's wrath. That makes it look like a children's fable. Not Ooh. Now, actually, I had not thought about that. That's a great thought when you, when you look at stuff like that. I'm going to go think about that some more. Interesting. This is what actually happened. We know that it wasn't just a happy thing. It wasn't just a children's fable. But everybody outside the ark died. That's like total world population minus eight people. That's like, that's like rated more than R. I mean, even with the body count movies, the Rambos and, and, and the, the, you know, the what is it, Soldier of Fortune and Commando with Schwarzenegger, there were some people who lived, like a few, but this is where everybody dies. If you notice that this picture, I think pictures it so well, you've got some children over here trying to cling onto the rocks, and it's almost like... You've got that rock jutting out of the water, and everything else is water except for the ark. And you know, soon that's going to be underwater as well, and everybody's dead. Like, can you imagine that epic type of silence after the rain stopped and you realized we're it? The whole planet and this solar system, and, and we're it. Everybody dies. And who, who, who killed them? God did, all right? So already the questions are building. So we've got God nuking people at Sodom and Gomorrah. We've got him drowning them with the worldwide flood. And another one, let's look at this popular little children's, I love the children's book. It says, Sing a Story, Sing a story. Battle of Jericho. Um, you guys remember the, the kid's song, Battle of Jericho? Jericho. Jericho, Jericho, Joshua fought the battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. Woo! <laughs> and that's what we were taught as kids. But then, you know, I remember I was somewhere around the age of like 12. I was like, what happened when the walls fell down? This looks happy before we go on with that. This looks happy, right? Everybody's going around. And um, often we're taught as kids, actually this was brought when I was a kid, teachers like, told us like, this is the point of the Bible story. Remember they walked around the city for, for six days and, and then they didn't do what? They didn't speak. It's like, 
So it's time to play the silent game. So like what we learn from, you know, the story of Battle of Jericho is that God wants you as a kid not to just shut up, right? That's God's will for your life. But here's what actually happened. Actually, I want to show you guys this too. This is circa 1992. It's like the Joshua uh, Atari, or this is maybe Game Boy. What's that? You never saw that? Actually, the, the Moses game was even better because Moses was like this little guy that would go here and he would be shooting out manna and like take out the bad guys. He had like a manna gun. It was very bizarre looking back at it, you know, because that's not actually what happened. I just thought I'd show that to you guys so it would uplift your spirits tonight. Okay, you good? Version 6, wow, okay. And it's from Wisdom Tree Incorporation. All right, before we all get depressed, let's go on to the next one. Um, this is what really happened. When the walls fell down, everyone was slaughtered except for Rahab's family. Now, did the people just do that? <clears throat> they just to say, you know what, let's just go kill people. Why did they do that? God told them to. And not only did he tell them, for this city specifically, kill everyone, but he says, don't even take any of the spoil. Which, remember, Achan violated that rule and took some of the things that looked nice and then later he and his family died. So we've already got God nuking people, Sodom and Gomorrah. We've got God drowning the whole earth except for eight people. Then for Canaan, telling the Israelites to wipe everybody out. So then we switch over to the New Testament. And we've got some divine acts of mercy. Just a few of the things that Jesus did, his acts of mercy. He heals the nobleman's son. He heals the demoniac, the man who was living in a graveyard, they would chain him up, he would break the chains, they would chain him up, break the chains, Jesus heals him. Jesus cleanses the leper, that was a fatal disease during those days, where your body, your body would actually rot off. Can you imagine that? You were talking about like a lease and being ill, and your, your body, I don't try to be gross, but it would literally rot off. And there was no way that you could treat that, but Jesus heals a person. He, heal, he healed the paralytic, the person who was never able to walk, cures the woman with the issue of blood, who had actually bankrupted herself trying to find somebody who could help her, and then all she did was touch the hem of Jesus' garment, and he heals her. Restored sight to two blind men, opens the eyes of a man born blind in John chapter 9, whole life not being able to see, and here comes Jesus, and he begins to heal people. So people are reading through the Bible, and uh, another one here would be that he raises Lazarus from the dead. That's a pretty big blessing, right? Unless you're Lazarus, then you have to come back after you've been there. Can you imagine, you know, talk about 90 minutes in heaven, Lazarus was there. You can only imagine the Lord said, you know, Lazarus, you're going to have to go back down for just a few years. Come on, you know. But then he goes down and he comes out and he sees Jesus. So here, at this point, we've got what seems to be the case in the Old Testament. And then we swing to Jesus healing everybody. And this, this, this is not what happens, this is not biblical, but this is what a lot of people say. In the Old Testament, God's killing everybody, and then in the New Testament, the Son of God comes and he's healing everybody. So then the claim is this, the God of the Old Testament is a God of wrath, and the God of the New Testament is a God of mercy. Okay, yeah, well... What about Revelation? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And we're, we're going to get to correcting this in just a second, but good job. So you were on that like, bam, what about Revelation? That's true. Yeah. Um, 
So before we go further, it's very interesting, and I hope this will, will help you when you think you, when you've got questions. There's a guy named Marcion. He lived from 85 uh, AD or CE from, to 160. And he um, was actually excommunicated from the church, but here's what he did with the problem. He began to read through the Bible and he said, there are two gods. One in the Old Testament is the Hebrew God of wrath and vengeance. And then there's the God of love as revealed in Jesus in the New Testament. So he actually had some questions but didn't examine the Bible thoroughly. And then he said that there were irreconcilable differences between the Old and New Testament. Which means if you took the Bible, he said, you know, there's no way that you can reconcile it. There's not only two different messages but there's actually two totally different gods. All right? And here's what he also taught. Uh, he created his own Bible by excluding 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, as well as in editing the Gospel of Luke. Then he banned his followers from eating meat and having uh, intercourse. And here's the reason why. Why would he do any of that? Because he taught that Jesus' body was not real because a material body would be evil. Because matter was created by the evil Hebrew God in the Old Testament. Let's stop right here. He had such a problem with the, with the Old Testament that he said, it's two totally different gods. And we talked a few weeks ago about how big of a problem dualism is, right? Believing like in a power of, four, of light and the power of darkness that are equal because they're going to collide, right? There never anything could be created. If it was created, it would never move in one direction or the other. It would just equal it out. And um, so he said that Jesus didn't have a real body. It was just kind of an appearance like he had a real body. Well, why would he make that claim? Well, because if you have a real body, then that means everything that we see, material stuff, it's evil. Your body is evil. The world is evil. Trees are evil. Chihuahuas are evil. I mean, every, everything is evil. But what would be a problem with that if we believe that the material world is evil? Remember anything in Scripture that goes against what Marcion taught? God created and pronounced it good. Okay. All right. Very good. Yeah. Yeah. It's what the Bible says. Right, Marcion? And people were hearing this in the first century. They're like, what are you smoking? And he began to teach this more and more. And so what ultimately happened is he was excommunicated in 144 CE because he was teaching, number one, Jesus is not necessarily the Son of God and uh, or in what we would understand it. And let's stop right here. What would be the significance of Jesus having a body? Why is that important that he would be born um, or have a physical body like ours for the gospel or for the Christian faith? Why is that a big deal? Exactly, exactly. To, to live as one of us, to pay the price for our sins. And there's um, something that we've covered before by a guy named Gregory of Nazianzus, and he said that what has not been assumed cannot be redeemed, which means that if Jesus did not assume a human body like ours, he wouldn't really fit the category of a savior for humans, right? Because you've got to be one of them in order to be the savior of them. He had to be, like Hebrews says, tested in all points as we are, yet without sin, which is a great encouraging verse about when we struggle with it. So that's kind of just a little bit of background by people who have gone really, really far 
and not try to biblically correct this problem um, or this perceived problem of God's wrath and God's love. So what about wrath? I'm just going to go through this statement and we're, we're going to talk about it. Okay? And people say, okay, it's one thing, Jeff, to say that God is just, but it's another thing to say that God has wrath. God is infinite in knowledge, right? Amen? God, God knows all. He's the greatest conceivable being. So making just decisions must be based on correct information, right? Got to have the right information. Decisions made by an infinitely good being with all knowledge, those decisions are perfectly just. Would you agree with this? Because he knows exactly all the information. That's one of the reasons why we have trials, right? Why we don't just have mob rule. Because we try as best we can to see if we have all the information so that we can make the just call. And when God has all knowledge, he's infinitely good, his decisions are perfectly just. Thus, we can pray knowing that God will do that which is just. That's a great, I think it's a great practical application that God will do what's right. So when I ask him for that, I'm praying according to who he is, and he will answer. So furthermore, God's, quote, wrath is not imbalanced like ours, but is the perfect mixture, and I may underline perfect mixture of justice and passion. Okay, God is a God of passion, desiring to do the right thing, which he does, and the right thing is that which is just. Now, often when we hear the word wrath, what do we think of? Any, any picture that may come to mind, not even having to do with Christianity, but we hear the word wrath or angry. Destruction. Okay, destruction. Okay. Or when maybe uh, a guy says, I made my wife very angry. Normal. Normal. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, let's, let's talk about personally. When we get really mad, okay, we, we don't use the word wrathful. I've never talked to anybody before, and they said, I am feeling quite wrathful today. We say, I'm ticked off, I'm hacked off, I'm other, other phrases, I'm angry, I'm mad. What, do, do we normally make the best decisions when we are in that state of mind? Okay, usually we seek revenge, and who's usually the object of that revenge? <laughs> so we, we've got <laughs> Miss Sharon. We've got Ah, okay. There we go. You go overboard. Anybody ever been guilty of that? Maybe taking something a little bit further than it should have been. You know, often the reason why we misunderstand a lot of what the Bible's saying about God's wrath and his anger and his, go, go KGV, KJV for a minute, his vehement anger is because we see the word anger, we see the word wrath, and we interpret that through our own experience. We're not very nice people. We're not very just, we're not very holy, we're not very righteous acting people when we are in those states. So often we attribute to God the emotions that we have when we're angry. But there's a difference. What may be a difference between God's quote-unquote anger and our, I guess we could say, emotionally driven, I haven't had much sleep 
everything's breaking today and I'm stressed out and if I have one more phone call that goes this way, I'm going to go postal anger. What could be, maybe be some differences there? Because we use the same word, but it's different concepts, right? What, what may be some difference in God's, I guess we could say, action and ours as far as what drives it? In other words, what, what drives us to anger that doesn't drive God? God's wrath is based on the perfect knowledge he has. God's, and our knowledge I think you guys just hit it, hit it on the head. God's infinite knowledge. So in other words, he knows exactly when it's just and good to pull the plug, right? He knows every single thing. And now for us, I don't know if you've seen the, the video, it makes you feel really bad, but it's about the person who was uh, cut off by this car and this car was dry, driving erratically. And so they said, how can anyone drive that car like that? That's so rude. They're taking people's lanes. And so they went up and tried to basically get in front of the car and put on the brakes but the end of the video, it's actually a dad in this sports car with his daughter trying to rush her to the emergency room. The person, once they saw that, they followed him too. They saw him get out and run in with his, his little girl. They felt like an absolute scum of the earth because they didn't have total knowledge. And so that's a huge difference that we can trust God's judgment. And here are the texts that go along with that. Yeah. Good. Good point, Sue. We're actually actually going to get to to the, the love justice, like what is love? But that's very true. Um, and we'll get to that just just a couple slides here. But here's here's one question. Um, some people say, okay, now God tells us, thou shalt not kill, uh, versus God's kill list. All right. Why are we commanded not to kill? when Scripture is full of examples of God killing people. I mean, doesn't this make God like the greatest cosmic hypocrite? Or make God like that dad or friend's dad that we knew who sat there and would get drunk and tell the kids, do as I say and not as I what? Not as I do. So here's um, an answer to that. God desires mercy over judgment, just what you're saying, Sue, Hence, judgment is, we could call it the last straw. This is from Genesis 18.25, Sodom and Gomorrah. <clears throat> Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you, exclamation point, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And you remember what happened, right? Abram's trying to say, God, if there's this many people in the city that are righteous, will you send judgment? God said, no. What about this? And you got down to, was it 10 People and the city, and then Abraham stopped then, and God was basically saying, if you can just find a handful of people who serve me, just for them, I'm going to withhold my judgment for the whole city. So the judgment on Sodom and Gomorrah was not a knee-jerk reaction. It was not God getting up on the wrong side of the bed. Okay, It was something that had taken a long time to come to, to where the only last remedy was judgment. Another example from the Bible, Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. And this, I think, is one of the most helpful verses. It's very, very to the point when you're talking to atheists or people who have questions. It says, Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. 
Turn back, turn back from your evil ways, for why will you die, O house of Israel? So right here, what does the God not have pleasure in? The, yeah, we're not talking about good guys. We're talking about, and when the Old Testament uses the term wicked, um, you can put things in there like Sodom and Gomorrah, which is going to be um, homosexual, uh, gang-forced, and um, murderers, rapists. I mean, you're talking about, well, we would say the worst of the worst, but the Bible says God does not gain pleasure from that. So from this verse, from the Old or New Testament, Old Testament. This is what Marcion didn't grab a hold of. He apparently didn't read this verse. Even in the Old Testament, before Jesus came on the scene and began to heal everybody, the God of the Old Testament, the same one as in the New Testament, is pleading with people to what? Turn back. back, Saying, come to me and receive mercy. He says it twice. And return back from what? From evil ways. In other words, he's saying, if you continue to go this direction, you're going to be destroyed. Come to me and I'll give you mercy. That's God in the Old Testament issuing an invitation for people um, to come to him. And just, just tell me, how does just these two verses um, paint God in a different light than what we often hear God described as in the Old Testament? You give you a chance. Yeah. He, he gives you a chance. He's, he's saying, look, uh, turn, good. Uh, anything else? Yeah, good. And that's something to share. I think if God in the Old Testament, let's just, just the Old Testament, if he was purely the God of what some people say of vengeance and wrath and hatred and killing, then why did he give anyone a chance at all? And here, this next verse is one that just blows me away. Um, Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 through 16, judgment is a last resort. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. Talking about Egypt, okay? 400 years uh, of slavery, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterwards they will come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And uh, it doesn't say what that is, um, but just a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. And this four right here, Um, is for the purpose. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Let's stop and camp on this for just a minute. The Amorites were some of the most wicked people in all of the Old Testament. Everything from child sacrifice to forced temple uh, prostitution, all sorts of incredibly devious things. If God is simply the God of wrath first, then here's our question to people who claim that the God of the Old Testament is nothing but wrath and judgment. Then why would God give the Amorites 400 years to repent if God simply had bloodlust and desired to judge all people just like that? What what do we mean by not yet complete? Well, we mean Sodom and Gomorrah stage to where there's no other way that it could be removed other than being judged. How does, that, how does that 
influence our view of God and the Old Testament as opposed to the New Testament? Anybody see maybe some connection there? Maybe some connection about God and the Old Testament for one corrupt people group giving them 400 years? I mean, that's, that's kind of long. Like, even when I was a kid, mom would say, clean your room. You say, I'll clean it in a few minutes, mom. Clean it now. Then you try to stretch that. Mom didn't have 400 years of patience. God does. So these three Old Testament texts contain uh, gospel um, mercy. Uh, I'm not going to go through all of this here, um, but uh, I'm just going to summarize this. It's called divine command theory. And um, we're going to have the notes will be online. Actually, I think we have time to get through it. I'll just just try to walk through this. Um, This is William Lane Craig on the question of people saying, how do I know that God is just in telling us not to kill when God told the Israelites to go into Canaan and kill everybody. I think we have time to get through this, so here we go. Uh, Craig says, I think that a good start at this problem, once again, the problem is God telling the Israelites to wipe everybody out in the Old Testament and Jesus doing nothing of the sort in the New until until Revelation. So I think that is a good start at this problem is to enunciate our ethical theory that underlies our moral judgments. According to the version of divine command ethics, which I've defended, our moral duties are constituted by the commands of a holy and loving God. Since God doesn't issue commands to himself, he has no moral duties to fulfill, right? That means that God never has anybody give him a to-do list. God's the one giving those out. He is certainly not subject to the same moral obligations and prohibitions that we are. For example, I have no right to take an innocent life. For me to do so would be murder. But God has no such prohibition. He can give and take life as he chooses. We all recognize this and we accuse some authority who presumes to take life as, quote, playing God. Human authorities arrogate to themselves rights which belong only to God. God is under no obligation whatsoever to extend my life for another second. Let me read that last sentence. God is under no obligation whatsoever to extend my life for another second. If he wanted to strike me dead right now, that's his prerogative. Is that true? Absolutely. What that implies is that God has the right to take the lives of the Canaanites when he sees fit. Remember the 400 years, mercy? How long they live and when they die is up to him. So the problem isn't that God ended the Canaanites' lives. The problem is that he commanded the Israeli soldiers to end them, right? Isn't that the real problem? Okay, it's like God's using people to do what he told the people not to do. Craig continues, isn't that like commanding someone to commit murder? No, it's not. Rather, since our moral duties are determined by God's commands, it is commanding someone to do something which, this is key, in the absence of a divine command, would have been murder. The act was morally obligatory for the Israeli soldiers in virtue of God's command, even though, had they undertaken it on their own initiative, it would have been wrong. On divine command theory, then, God has the right to command an act which, in the absence of a divine command, would have been sin, but which is now morally obligatory in virtue of that command. 
So for us, Scripture is our guide. And somebody says, now hold on. Does that mean that we can somehow take the Bible to say that we can do that same thing today? Absolutely not. It was a specific command for a specific time. And did the Israelites even do what God commanded? Nope. And they ended up suffering for it. Um, so you can, you can find this online as well. But did anybody have a question about this? What we've just done is we've opened up a can that we could literally be here for like eight weeks in a row. So if you have a question on this, we can try to take a stab at it. Y'all be good? Okay. Well, I, I'm, I'm guessing that this is probably not the same as if in the military, if you're, in, if you're a military, um, if you're coming in and killing your and kill for whatever reason, it's, it's okay. But if you just went up and just started killing people, obviously it's not okay. You are subject to crimes. Yeah, yeah. In in a sense, you could relate it to 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 war and the military. But even you know, with the war and military, there are certain things that you know the military, by their own rules, will not do, like execute a POW or torture or something like that. But um, I think for 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 me, it's helpful to tie this back to God's total knowledge of everything. Okay, and that God knows exactly when things are right to be done. But two, I think that all of us would do very well to take a step back so that we're not guilty of addressing this as 21st century Americans because war, up until modern times, was not anything most people groups ever had a problem with. Um, Some things that would would turn our stomachs today, for most of the world's history, it was day-to-day living. Everything from fighting um, to the work habits of people. So I think often when people today look back and react at things in ancient history, and we're not saying that those things are necessarily right outside of, of Scripture, but it, I think that we're, we're, we're very conditioned today by our world, and things that would shock us were very, very normal in the Old Testament. In fact, um, in the Old Testament, um, there are a lot of things that, that God gave that we commands that today we say, why would God do that? And it seems cruel to us, but it was actually mercy then. For, for example, when God said in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If we go back to Genesis 4, Lamech was the one who said, I have killed a young man for striking me. And I have killed another man for wounding me. You know what the rule was when God gave the Mosaic law? It was if you put out my eye, I take your life. If you put out my tooth, I take out all your teeth. I read that that was the rule. So really, and, and historians will tell you this, the Mosaic Law is not one of these things where like, man, if somebody knocks out your tooth, you get your buddies to hold them down, you're like, okay, i got to get that middle tooth. Bam, one for one. God was literally saying that's all you get. I wasn't saying here's what you can get. He says that, that's a limit. There's a limit to what you can do, which goes back to our human desire for, like you said earlier, Fred, vengeance. And so really the Old Testament is kind of trying to put a cap on that. And we, we'll, we'll deal with that another time. Um, how do, I make sen- do we make sense of God's love and justice? Here's what Millard Erickson says, and this is very helpful to me. He says, quote, If we begin with the assumptions that God is an integrated being, in other words, that God is not all over the place, that you don't have God made up of all sorts of different things and emotions and ideas, and the divine attributes are harmonious, which means God fits together, <laughs> Isn't that a good thing that God doesn't have to deal with like God's dark side or this or that? He's together. We will define the attributes in light of one another. Thus, justice is loving justice and love is just love. 
What do you think most people today think of when they hear the word love? Other than Virginia Tech football and this area of the world. Okay, happy and nice. Good. What do you think most people don't think of when they hear the word love? Hard? Okay. Discipline. Oh, watch out. Discipline. Why, why don't you think a lot of people have connotations of the word love, therefore discipline, therefore punishment, difficulty, hardship? Why do you, why do you think that is? Why do you think we often we never correlate those two things together? Okay. All right. Yeah. 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 A parent. And in what sense would a parent maybe equate punishment, justice, judgment? To be, you know, to be a God fearing. You want to teach him to be, you know, a, a good citizen. You want to teach him. So yeah. I mean, then you, that's a that's a teaching tool. Good. Yeah. Tough love. Okay, and what would be the objective, if we could use that, that term tough love or strong love, what's the objective there? Teach. It, okay, to teach. Save you from your own wrong path, save you from that, save you from the world. Good, yeah. Well, what would we all say of, of a parent who maybe said, you know what, justice has nothing to do with love, therefore... I think that children learn best when they express themselves and they should not have ideas pressed upon them by anyone else and they should have total and complete freedom in their life. And my son, Gabe, dude, you're a totally cool guy, but, but what's your favorite food? Pizza. Pizza, okay. All right, when I was Gabe's age, if my parents had given me total free reign on what to do in regard to my diet, it would have been Lucky Charms. In the morning, probably pizza at lunch, dinner, ice cream would work. And after a while, what's going to happen? The health is going to break down. And is the parent really caring for the child if there are no parameters set up? We call that social services, right? Like that's when social services comes up and says you're not fit to raise your child. And the state forcibly takes the child away. So that kind of builds the case for these last five Questions and these are really statements. We're, we're going to look at them as questions about how we how we solve this. Um, do love and justice have to be mortal enemies? No. Well, let's think of the example here: um, a person who is a murderer. Is does it mean that the society is cold and cruel if they take that person out of society? and punish them. We're not even talking about the death penalty or life in prison, but just take them out of society and give them punishment. Does that mean that the society or the judge or the jury doesn't have love? It, it may prove the opposite, right? It may prove that they do care about innocent people, that they do um, take the person... Is there a verse in the Bible that says the man who bears a rod hates his son? Yes, it's in Proverbs. And I, does anybody know the reference? I don't off the top of my hand. But I know we have at least one iPhone here in the house, so we should be able to, yeah. But that's true, John. And, and what do most people say? It's just an American saying that's ripped off of the Bible. He who spares the rod spoils. But Proverbs says hates. Because you're not doing the right thing. Can, exactly. You can't give me mm -hmm. us, you know, and they love you more when you give them 
you know, parameters too. That's, that's very true. And a lot of parents struggle today with trying to be the friend of their child as opposed to being the parent of their child. <laughs> My dad told me that one time, and I never believed him, especially when he said, hang on to the bed like this, and if you move, you get another one. And I'm like, how do I not move when you're swinging the Board of Education, or the Board of Correction? That's what he would call it. My dad has kind of somewhat of a dry sense of humor, and as a kid, I never thought that was... I don't even know if he was trying to be funny. This... Proverbs 13.24. There we go. Between Ben and the iPhone, we can research it up. Number three, how could it be that our own sin, as well as our culture that excuses sin, has diluted our sense of justice and twisted our view of true love? And we've discussed this before, that often uh, not our environment determines who we are, but often our environment, at least it shapes our presuppositions. It shapes the things that we assume to be true before even coming to examine something. So uh, all of the data that we get constantly with even conversations with people uh, could even be within the church or uh, everything from, from movies to TV. In fact, so many of the movies today uh, in Hollywood actually, uh, you guys have noticed that, right? You've noticed that it has some type of a little bit of a... Uh, I don't know if we could say moralistic twist. I guess we could say a twisted moralistic bent. That may be a better term. And there's a lot of times political overtones. So uh, I think that the answer to this question, could it be that our own sin, as well as our culture that excuses sin, has diluted our sense of justice and twisted our view of true love? I think that we have to say absolutely Yes, and uh, if you remember the story of David after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba, Uriah's wife, and then he had staged, he had, he, I guess you could say he uh, gave a black ops order that Uriah was to be killed so that um, there would be uh, what he thought would be a way to cover up the crime. And then Nathan comes to David and he says, he tells him a story, right, of the rich man who owned tons of sheep. And then there was a poor man who had a sheep that was basically like its pet. And then the rich man wanted something to eat and he came and looked out and instead of taking one of his own, he went to the poor man and took all that he had. Now, under the law, he would have had to repay fourfold, right? The Old Testament law. What David said, he jumped up and he said, that man must die. Why, why would he say such a thing? Why would he tell, why would he go so far above and beyond? It almost reminds us of Lamech, right? In Genesis chapter 4, like we talked earlier, he said, I have killed a man for striking me. I have I've killed, a man, uh, killed a man for wounding me. So often when there is bitterness and there's sin, even unforgiveness in our heart, we often don't see our own sin. And then when we see something small, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, what, what was it? Um, if you notice a speck, a little dot in your brother's eye, 
First go take the beam, take the tree trunk out of your own eye, and then try to go help someone else. So I think that even if we lived in more of a biblical culture, we would have to say that even just the inside enemy, uh, the enemy within, Andy Stanley, in fact, he's got a great series on uh, the enemy within, everything from anger to lust to greed, and often the things that hold us back from even understanding uh, how God works in the Bible is are our own sin. So number four, could it be that God's sense of justice is more refined than ours? I just say, I mean, that, that's, that's one of those questions. Once again, the question is, could it be that God's sense of justice is more refined than ours? I mean, that, that's one of those questions that we have to say yes, right? I mean, if God exists... His scope of power and holiness and and a correct view on morality and justice has to be so far above ours, if only for the fact that God has all knowledge, that God is omniscient. If, If he's only omniscient, I mean, he has all of the data. You could take that one fact alone and make the argument that it is not only possible that God's sense of justice is more refined than ours, but it's absolutely certain. And finally, number five, how do we make sense of God's love and justice? Could it be, number five, could it be that the answer to the question of God's justice and God's love is to be found in the gospel? Now, this may be somewhat familiar territory. I hope it is to us, who've, the ones who are engaged in the study on systematic theology, because if you didn't want meat, you wouldn't be here. Uh, you would be at the vegan bar or somewhere. But the Bible, when it speaks of the gospel, let's go back to our verse in 1 John 3.16. And in the Bible, I want you to just think about the, whole, the totality of the gospel in this verse. By this we know love. By what? Here's what it says. That he, speaking of Jesus, laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. You see, the gospel contains the answer. In other words, when he laid down his life for us, Jesus satisfied the just demands of a holy God that sin must be punished. Sin must be punished. Even a corrupt judge to some degree understands that there's got to be some satisfaction of justice. In other words, if there has been a law broken, there has to be a fine paid. And when the Bible speaks of Jesus dying, Jesus laying down his life, Jesus absorbing the wrath of God for us, not only does that, this is such a beautiful picture, not only does that demonstrate the power of God in sending his son and his son being able to withstand all of the temptations that get you and I to fall, often more than we should. I mean, sometimes for Christians, it can even come to a point to where we have to re-examine the whole thing and come to that Romans 7, like Paul says, I, what I want to do, I don't do, and what I, I hate, I do, and what I want to do, I, oh, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And he says, the man Christ Jesus. 
Even Christians have to come back to the point that it is only by the fact that Jesus has done what we could never do. Live a perfect life, and because of that perfect life, because he was virgin born, and because he was virginly conceived, he didn't have the sin nature, and he received, he suffered, he absorbed once again the wrath of God but why would he do something like that? Because of the overwhelming and the unexplainable love of God. It's the love of God. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7 says this, In him, Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his Grace. Grace is so amazing. It, 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 it would be something like uh, if we were arrested for stealing a car, a Grand Theft Auto. We saw a Franklin County special and it was a four by four and it was jacked up and we said, I want that. I want that, right? Like Eve, she looked at the tree and it looked good to her. And so we go and we steal it and we're there in court and we're about to go away to prison and the judge is about to pass sentence, but yet someone comes in and not only pays the fine for us, but they come and they pay off our house, they pay off our credit cards, they pay for us to go to college or if we have children for our children to go to college and we think, what, who would do that? And it's the person who actually owned the vehicle. I mean, that, that defies logic, right? That, that doesn't even make sense. And that's why the gospel is so radical. Because in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, the Bible says, While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Man. That means while I was still living a life that was diametrically opposed to God and what he is, who he is, what he's about, what he's for, while I was still everything against him, he not only sent his son, but his son, when he came, laid down his life. So when we talk to people about this question of you know, the justice or the wrath of God and, and the love of God, just simply point them to the gospel and as long as they will let you talk, tell them about what Jesus has done, tell them about his suffering, tell them about his life, and then contrast that with your testimony of how you fit the paradigm of a biblical sinner, a person who is described in the Bible as not having any hope in the world and who knows, right? Like when we talk to people, we know that they know, even the most ardent atheist, we know that deep in the heart, even of people who reject God, at least they say they do, that in the heart of every man and woman, there is that still small voice of the conscience telling them there is a God. When you explain the gospel, it helps God's justice, his wrath, and his love all to be mixed together in a beautiful picture called the gospel. And then there's the Lord Jesus extending his hand to them saying, whosoever shall believe in me shall not perish, 
but they'll have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this study. We thank you for the gospel and how we can never exhaust it. And Father, would you give us courage to not be afraid to mention the tough things, wrath and judgment, because they're there. But Lord, would you help us to be overwhelmed with compassion for people and a love for you. In Jesus' name.